1: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Middle East Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joshua Donovan, and today I'm delighted to welcome Sarah Goltieri to the show. Dr. Goltieri is an associate professor of American Studies and Ethnicity, as well as History and Middle East Studies at the University of Southern California. Supported by fellowships from the National Endowment of the Humanities, the American Council of Learned Societies, and others, Professor Gultieri has published several studies on the history of race, gender, and immigration, including her first book, Between Arab and White, Race and Ethnicity in the Early Syrian American Diaspora, and a co-edited volume entitled Women and Islamic Cultures, Disciplinary Paradigms and Approaches. But today we will be discussing her latest book, Arab Routes, uh, Pathways to Syrian California, which was published in 2019 by Stanford University Press. Thank you so much for sitting down with us today, Professor Gultieri.
0: You're very welcome, Joshua. It's a real delight to be in conversation with you this morning. And thank you for uh, making time to speak to me and to uh, talk about my uh, recent book.
1: Absolutely. Uh, So could you please just briefly introduce yourself to our readers and uh, how did you come to write this book in particular?
0: Sure. Um, I'll just add a little bit to your lovely introduction. Um, I am an interdisciplinary scholar, which is probably um, obvious from the multiple uh, units I'm attached to at the University of Southern California. I teach and advise students in American studies and ethnicity, in history and Middle East studies. Um, I am a product of uh, a wonderful program at the University of Chicago. I trained there in um, the 1990s. And my first job was actually at uh, Loyola University in New Orleans and I've been at USC since 2005. I came to write this book um, as a second project. So I had finished and published my first book, Between Arab and White, and I wanted to move on to a, what I thought would be a more contained project, focusing on the uh, on the lo- location of Los Angeles, uh, focusing on the early Syrian and Lebanese community in Los Angeles. Um, As I began the research, uh, most especially as I started on a set of oral histories, I soon realized that this idea that it would be a more contained book uh, was (laughs) uh, pretty um, ill-conceived and in a wonderful way because I actually began to realize that there were ways for me to broaden conceptually. Uh, the scope uh, geographically uh, the, uh, and also archivally, which I'll talk about a little bit later. But um, I think a, a key moment for me in sort of shifting the analytical frame was when I was uh, in conversation with uh, a woman who was the daughter of Syrian and Lebanese immigrants to Los Angeles who had come in the um, Early part of the twentieth century, um, and she was describing how her father uh, spoke Spanish to the the what the woman she called the mother's helper, who was uh, a Mexican young woman. Um, and I said to my interlocutor, I said, oh, that's very interesting. Your uh, father spoke Spanish. And she replied to me, oh, yeah, he was Mexican. And so I paused on that uh, assertion because we just spent the previous half hour talking about, you know, him growing up in Lebanon and migrating um, to Los Angeles. And she had somehow in that first iteration of, of the interview left out the Mexican part Um and as I probed more and asked her to develop uh, this the story of movement of her father, I found out that actually he had gone to Mexico and had spent many years working there, and was um, a Spanish speaking uh, Arab who came to Los Angeles. Um, and so I was interested in using this moment in my uh, oral histories to think more. Uh, broadly about what would it mean to write a history that placed uh, the Mexicanness of many of the Lebanese and Syrians who came into Los Angeles um, at the center of my analysis, rather than just have it be um, kind of a tangential uh, piece of information that even even my interlocutors sometimes forgot to mention
1: that's uh it's a fascinating story and and something that I want to push on a a little bit more than the the significance of of centering a story um away from the east coast right because for me one of the most obvious contributions that this book makes is that it, it speaks to um a a a pretty persistent gap i i would argue in scholarship on arab immigration to the united states which is often centered on on the east coast and and new york city uh in particular um there are of course some exceptions but um but you take a a different focus and i I want to just read a a brief uh sentence of yours. I thought uh the the wording was really entertaining uh to me uh, but you say on on page four um, if we continue to think metaphorically of New York as the mother colony then Arab Routes is interested in other kinds of family idioms, her unacknowledged lovers, her forgotten half-sisters, her surrogate daughters, and her renegade sons. Uh, So what do we gain by talking about uh, some of those uh, forgotten uh, family idioms?
0: Yeah, I like that you pulled that sentence out because, you know, I struggled uh, with... This the weight of the historiography uh on Arab immigration, I mean, struggled in the sense of wondering how I would both, as a scholar, acknowledge the wonderful contributions uh that uh, so many historians sociologists have made to this. Uh, canon of Arab American history. I would acknowledge and respect and honor that contribution, but at the same time, argue that it was important, and I actually think it's urgent to move away from some of the epistemological blind blind spots of that scholarship. And um, so, it's lovely to talk about New York as a mother colony for Arab Americans. It's um, a way of recognizing the um, importance of the city and its surroundings as a, uh, an early place of congregation, of community building. But the problem has been that it's t- uh, this um, uh, constant Centering of the narrative of Arab immigration on the East Coast has uh, obviously tended to um, undermine the other uh, points of origin of communities, points of origin of movement, and also to, I think, quite um, dramatically efface the really transnational um, and even hemispheric component of the late 19th and early 20th century uh, Syrian migration in and around the Americas. So uh, I think I was trying to um, use different idioms. I think it's very important as um, scho- uh, for scholarship that is trying to move away from um, very established paradigms that we offer language that can... Um, conceptually do that work for us so i i thought it's okay to preserve some of the family idioms um the relationships of motherhood and um but i thought well we can push um a little bit further and think of other kinds of uh metaphors uh i i try to move away from botanical metaphors um oceanic ones (laughs) you know i don't want to talk about uh you know trees and soil and uh in ways uh, I, I, I prefer to try to uh, sit, to, to offer an, um, new metaphors, new idioms uh, to um, develop uh, my argument around the mu- the multiplicity and the multiple nodes of entry and the the, the multiple points of origin for the Arab American narrative
1: so in order to in order to explore that multiplicity. Um, As historians, uh, we have to have some form of source material. And I think um, one of the reasons that the East Coast has been so covered is not only because of the importance, of course, of of Ellis Island, right, and and these notions of of waves arriving on the shore are pretty common to a lot of uh, histories of immigration, but um, also, you know, with Arab immigration specifically, there are just there are a fair number of sources, uh, p- particularly for for the mother colony, right, or for New York, several Arabic language newspapers have survived. Um, of course, people who don't even really work on uh, Arab immigration have probably heard of literary figures like uh, Khalil Gibran and, and Amin Rouhani who've left behind a lot for people to to go through. Um, There's, at least in in my experience, there's a a smaller source base or a more difficult source base to try to find um, Arab migrants who went to other places in the United States. Uh, So how did you go about trying to build a source base to tell these different stories outside of the New York City area?
0: I think that's a really nice way to put it, Joshua, that I went, how did I go about building a source base? So I think uh, one of the important ways that this book uh, is different from my first book is that I realized fairly early on that if I was going to try to tell a different story about um, Syrian and Lebanese migration in the United States, that pivoted away from the East coast that I was going to have to do exactly that to build a source base uh, because I wasn't going to find it in the um, or find it in a way that I I think I could capture all the nuance that I wanted to in the uh, established repository. So as you know, there's a wonderful collection, the NAF Arab American collection at the Smithsonian uh, the Library of Congress has wonderful material, including um, microfilm of newspapers published in in New York. Um, so there is obviously wonderful uh, archival um, thickness in New York uh, and in in, the, in, the, in Washington D.C. Uh, but um, and I think it's. It, you know, obviously, important for younger scholars to, uh, to access those repositories, and it's one of the ways that they can get funding to do their work. You know, the Smithsonian, for example, uh, has a, a fellowship for the use of its collections. So it is um, important to use those established repositories, but the problem is that they have been, in a way, um, fetishized as like the the only places where you can find uh, historical documentation on the early Arab American community. So, I uh, began to really use the oral histories that I was conducting as a place where I could build my archival base, my source base. Uh, it was not uncommon for me to. Uh, interview um, family members like, intergenerationally, so there would often be members of uh, multiple generations in one interview, and they would bring to these sessions uh, photographs, letters. Um, it was it was a very fluid and exciting uh, process for me, and I was often leaving these. Um, mm-hmm. uh, these uh, oral histories that I was conducting in people's homes, people's basements, uh, I was leaving with material. uh, And then I would bring it back and they would give me more material. Uh, I um, remember a really wonderful moment. I was at the um, St. Nicholas uh, Antiochian uh, church in Los Angeles in their library, uh, in the basement, I was, um, according to the librarian, the first person to be using the the, the library. And the librarian, uh, Robert Andrews, um, started just to sort of pull things down and say, oh, you might want to look at this, you might want to look at that. And so I really loved that so much of the archival base of this book is the product of these kind of transactions uh, that I had. I mean, archival transactions that I had with my interlocutors. And so um, I think it's a a way of thinking about the constitution of an archival base that is um, dynamic and and mobile. There is no repository, (laughs) right? There's no, uh, I have stuff in my my study now. I have stuff that I've used and sent back to people. And so I actually think it's, a, it's uh, an exciting way to think about how archives don't have to be always um, deposited, right, in one place, that they can actually be moving around. And uh, uh, I can't wait for another scholar to come along and use some of the material I've used, added to it, and also um, create... Uh, her own um, archival base
1: it's i mean it sounds on on the one hand a, a bit daunting but at the same time uh, extremely exciting and and I love when uh, when having these conversations, particularly about uh, middle east studies um, being able to think about a problem that so many people have, which is uh, difficulties accessing materials in formal archives that one might uh, readily draw on studying histories of, of other parts of the world. Um, and so I, I admire that creativity. Um, and I, I want to, uh, want to build on that a bit. One of the other things that you've, uh, used in addition to this, this very rich and interesting, um, set of, of archives. Um, Out of which come these really uh, interesting anecdotes in the book. Uh, You also pull uh, U.S. government sources as well, census records and things like that. Um, And one of the the early conclusions that you draw um, is that El Paso, in particular, El Paso, Texas, was a a really important and often underappreciated hub of internal migration, right? Um, uh, One of the many pathways, for example, that you talk about in your book. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about um, El Paso as a a space of of transit or or a a pathway?
0: Sure. I, like you, was uh, surprised uh, by this. um, And I did first uncover it I'm not the only scholar, obviously, to write about El Paso. There's some really lovely uh, work that's been done on medical inspection um, at uh, El Paso in the early part of the 20th century that has um, discussed the, the place of Syrians in the medical inspection regime. So I I, I, I knew that El Paso mattered in the story of uh, uh, Mexican. Move, uh, the movement of Mexi- uh, S- uh, Syrians from Mexico to the United States. But what I was not prepared uh, originally for was the uh, extent of the crossings, right? So the border crossings uh, in the late 19th, early 20th century are just um, staggering ten- in the tens of thousands of, uh, of uh, people identified uh, as Syrian um Moving uh, across, back, across, back. Um, so it's both a pathway, but it's also this. Um, I think you, you use that word node, which I really like. Um, it's this, uh, this place of um, movement, right? That uh, I think is. Helpful for us stretching the narrative of Arab migration to, um obviously to from the border area south and seeing how um the, the the border obviously in this, especially in this early 20th century period, is a space of fluidity, right? And I think it's uh, the focus on El Paso, it's a smaller um piece of my argument in the book, but it's one that I hope can, can be developed by, by other scholars in more detail um, in relationship to a borderlands history. So I think yet this is yet another contribution of the uh, book and to uh, a set of conversations that are ongoing um, in um, Middle East mobility studies a set of conversations around um, the importance of hemispheric um, um, frameworks and really frameworks that uh, sort of bust out of the the nation-state paradigms that uh, tended to really ossify the study of migration for many decades. Uh, So in, in my original training, it was very common for those of us working on migration to identify our expertise in terms of um, a nation state framework. So there were the people who did, you know, Arabs in the U S the people who did Arabs in Mexico, Arabs in Brazil. And and I think what um, we're seeing now in the um, scholarship is uh, a real um, productive discussion on connecting uh, those connecting the scholarship across nation states. And, um, you know, one of the ways we have to do that is to be uh, archivally uh, creative and inventive, right? So we can't rely on the national repositories if we want to tell a story that is more focused on the movement across nation state boundaries. So I think some of the archival choices I made in this book have to do with that a desire to really um, push against the boundedness of the nation state in the study of migration.
1: I think that's a, a really important contribution, and uh, you know, especially in the twenty first century, I think it can be hard. We tend to get into these nation state paradigms, right? You know, in particular, if you want to just take as an example the U.S. Mexico border, it's it has become. Not only ossified, right, but but so profoundly militarized that it can be difficult, I think, to to go back to a time when that wasn't necessarily the case, right? So when I was reading, uh, just how many thousands of of times the the U.S. Mexico border was being crossed uh, by Syrian uh, migrants in in the nineteen teens and twenties. I thought of uh Rachel Saint John's work right a, a line in the sand where she she talks about the long history of of the US Mexico border and and recalls a time uh where the the border was a lot uh more fluid certainly than it is today. Um and one of the things that you do uh to build on that is you note that even though there there is this sort of uh what one might call today transnational fluidity uh, there was also the emergence of uh racialized immigration regimes um and you you talk about how mexicanness uh the kind of which that you sort of alluded to earlier um ends up complicating the racialization of syrian immigrants can you speak to that a little bit and how um how how these border crossings, right, or how time both in the United States and Mexico uh complicated how Syrians were identified by states at this time?
0: Yeah. I think uh this complicates so so seeing Syrian Migrants, and I was uh, focused particularly on migrants who ended up for a period of time in Los Angeles. Some of them uh, went back to Mexico, some of them moved to other parts of California. Um, But I I was interested in understanding how uh, Mexicanness mattered to the racialization of Syrians. Um, and so this is really an extension of earlier commitments i had um and continue to have uh in my work um uh, in which i uh, argue for the importance of race as a as a category of analysis in the study of arab migration and i i i think i just have to assert again that this is um still something that we need to Uh, in a way, defend as historians. Um, It was uh, interesting for me as a younger scholar to um, see how there was, you know, pushback in some areas of our field of Middle East studies, pushback to uh, the idea that um, race mattered in the study of Arab migration. And and not in a way that was sort of um, a knee-jerk response, oh, Arabs have been uh, victims of racial discrimination, which of course is the case, but really to be um, probing in our analysis of, um, um, of of race in the early Syrian-American uh, experience. So I have uh, for a long time worked with the the concept of betweenness um, that uh, early Arab migrants, those especially from Syria or greater Syria, um, moved in a space of in-betweenness between Asian-ness and and whiteness, both participating in claims to uh, white uh, racial identity and the privileges that it afforded, such as the right to vote, the right to purchase property, uh, but also ways in which uh, Arab immigrants have pushed against um, identifying as white and um, re- refusing, in fact, at different junctures to participate in, in white supremacist logics. So I've, for a long, I've been a, um, someone interested in continuing this conversation around the importance of race. And racialization in our study of my Arab migration, and I wanted to uh, acknowledge that when we um, asked the question, "How did the Mexicanness of Syrian migrants in Los Angeles? How did it matter?" I wanted to do so in such a way that didn't claim that Syrians were uh, who had come from mexico uh, were necessarily Mexican in the same ways that um, communities long-standing communities of Mexicans in los angeles um, uh, were Mexican but there was a way in which they um, participated in the production of Mexican ethnicity. they had children who were born in mexico who were uh always primarily Spanish-speaking, whose, uh, whose friends were also uh, Mexican. And the community formation we see is one that is more hybrid, right? So um, I wanted to use some of the concepts of hybridity and even of mixture, of mestizaje, to think about um, Syrian racialization that is sort of moving uh, in, a, in a direction uh, away from, from what the whiteness paradigm uh, and complicating uh, the Asianness of uh, Syrian uh, racialization.
2: slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off
1: so um further complicating uh the the racialization of, of Syrian immigrants you also talk um about uh in, in the second chapter in particular the rise of interethnic solidarities particularly between uh Syrian migrants and um, other uh, Latino migrants to Southern California. Um, and at the same time, you also present a, a new or a newer sort of interesting methodology to trace one figure through uh, various archives and moments, not to sketch out a, a complete biography of sorts, but uh, but to make a broader analytical point. And so the, the figure that I have in mind that you do this with is uh, George Shibley, um, a prominent defense attorney in Los Angeles. Could you tell us a little bit about Shibley and, and how he illustrates the kind of inter-ethnic solidarities that you were talking about in the book?
0: Sure. So this was, in a sense, an ironic um, or <laughs> surprising move for me to make methodologically, uh, given some of my earlier uh you, you know refusals to do uh you know what i thought would be great in the history of great men in in my work and so um you're right that i do uh use or you know trace the uh connection of george shibley who was uh, uh, one of the lead defense attorneys in the uh in people versus zamora which was Popularizes the sleepy lagoon case in which um um a group of young mexican-american men were brought up on charges for murder that were trumped up and um the trial was a real travesty of um justice they were uh, not allowed the young men were not allowed to debate they were um um you know denied um counsel and they were uh charged. Several of them were charged with the murder of another young Mexican-American uh, man, Jose Diaz, and they were sent to San Quentin prison. And George Shibley played a very important uh, role in the early phase of the trial. Uh, he was relentless in his attention to establishing a record uh, that could then be used as the basis for the appeal. And uh, I became fascinated by his t- um, tenacity and wondered why uh, he, th- this uh, Syrian American um, y- young man who was soon to be drafted into the army, uh, why he had worked so tirelessly on this um, campaign to uh, defend and eventually free the uh, uh, the, the young Mexican American man, and. I found that while there was some uh attention and uh in in this very deep historiography of the Sleepy Lagoon murder case uh there's some attention to his place in the story there was also this really frustrating um kind of erasure and I also encountered that erasure, erasure in the uh, voluminous records of the Sleepy Lagoon Defense Committee, which are housed at UCLA here in Los Angeles. And I, um, I think one of the reasons I made this commitment to use George Shibley really as a thread through this chapter is that I was uh, interested in uh, uh, pushing against this erasure. And I knew that I had to keep him in focus if I wanted to uh, sort of methodologically reclaim uh, this piece of Arab American history within the larger history of uh, uh, Latino social movements in Los Angeles that were galvanized in these um, uh, contexts of the race baiting of the Second World War. So um, the larger uh, argument is indeed, as you've suggested, Joshua is a is one of interethnic uh, coalition building and solidarity, and um, the decision to uh, center George Shibley in the story really had to do with uh, this methodolo- methodological commitment to sort of um, restoring his place in a in in a way, but would also uh, argue for the importance of the Arab American history to, uh, social movement organizing in Los Angeles. So it's, uh, a, a thread that I pull, uh, through to the, um, to the concluding chapters as well.
1: So, um, going beyond, uh, a narrative of, of one man, you also talk about um forms of cultural production um including sitcoms like uh the Danny Thomas show, I guess another great man i suppose but um but there are others as well these um outdoor uh mahrajan festivals uh in the southwest, these sort of cultural festivals uh for Sierra lebanese uh migrants especially Um, and and this, this 1950s or the forties and fifties generation um, I think has generally received much less attention historiographically than both the generations that preceded it and, and followed it. Um, And, and you mentioned in the book, Edward Said himself uh, wrote pretty dismissively of this generation as, as politically quiescent, um, assimilationist and that sort of thing Uh, but you push back against this a little bit so so what is going on with this sort of 40s and 50s generation particularly in the realm of, of cultural production
0: so there's a lot going on and i think um just to relate to an earlier question you posed joshua around archival praxis in this book um i uh, began to, um, hear a lot in the oral histories that I was doing with families. I began to hear a lot about these, mahridin, the, uh, these out- massive outdoor festivals. And it, again, it was an intergenerational story. So, um, a granddaughter would be telling me about, Oh, uh, how her father did the barbecue at a Maharajan in, in in near Griffith park. And, um, so it was very obvious that in terms of um, expressive culture, these outdoor festivals were very uh, important um, for the Syrian-American community in, in Southern California and, and more broadly in the Southwest. Uh, and it was frustrating, though, because there wasn't a lot of uh, archival, archival material. I kept hoping that... I would uh, find more programs from the uh, from the Maharajans, but um, I really had to rely on secondary literature, um, including some uh, really wonderful uh, work by Anne Rasmussen, uh, an ethnomusicologist who has um, a really amazing chapter in her dissertation on uh, music in the what she calls the middle period of the 40s and 50s. And so you asked me what was going on with this generation. A lot is going on in terms of cultural production, and I yet I think what uh, I was wanting to resist was this um, kind of unfortunate tendency to kind of write off this uh, period as being not in particularly important to Arab American history because we don't see it as a period of political activism. Right. And there's even a, a tendency among um, the generation that sort of came of age in the 60s in and in a radical moment to talk about this earlier generation as being uh, politically accommodating and uh, quiescent. And uh, I I think the, there is uh, some really interesting work to be done by the political scientists on this uh, differentiation, but I was particularly interested in what I often call the fissures, right, in the the, the the places where that narrative begins to break, and it's not the same as arguing, oh yes, the the earlier generation of the '40s and '50s was um, radical, like the generation that came of age in Detroit in the, in the in '67. It's not that they were the same; it's that there are uh, continuities that I think are surprising and are worth. Um, probing uh, to, to, so that we can extend this narrative of activism back uh, and also bring forward the place of cultural production in, in um, the study of Arab-American activism, right? So I argue in the chapter that <clears throat> there's this kind of slippage between the conventions that were more thought, typically thought of as like political uh, rallying points, and the maharajah, which were <clears throat> we tended to, which we tend to think of as being more, um, you know, party-like and festival-like, but there's actually a lot of organizational overlap. People attended uh, both the conventions uh, and also the maharajah, and so I think, um, as a closing statement to your question, I would just say that. This is also another really exciting development in the historiography: is the the, the newer attention to cultural production uh, <clears throat> in in the Arab American um, narrative beyond just uh, literary production, right? So we have lots of work on uh, the literature of the Mahjar, but we have less on music, less on um, uh, storytelling, and so I think it's it's just um, part of a. Uh, an exciting shift in uh the scholarship to different registers of expressive culture in arab american community formation.
1: So your story then does pick up uh with with a more um i th- i think maybe traditionally activist generation, right? You do talk about that uh post 67 uh generation in particular. um And you focus uh, on third generation Arab American women in particular, uh, uh, relying, of course, on oral histories. But you also talk about uh, what you call archival activism that some of your interlocutors uh, undertake, a a form of history telling outside of the academy. Uh, So what did you mean by archival activism? What is that?
0: So archival activism, uh, for me, is a form of engaging politically with archival praxis. So <clears throat> seen in the constitution of uh, an archive, even if you don't call it that, so if you collect your grandmother's letters, and um you you don't know how to read them and you then you decide well i think i'm going to have somebody help me uh decode and decipher these letters that for me is a form of uh, ar- archival activism uh if you then choose to use the knowledge that you're gleaning from these documents these letters to engage with um history telling right a, Narrating your own history, narrating the history of your family, and this is a form of history telling that occurs outside of the academy, right? So I encountered this uh, frequently in my research. I uh, imagine that many people who are doing oral history research encounter this same phenomenon, where their interlocutors, uh, and in the case in the case of the chapter that you're referring to, I'm. In discussion with uh women who came of age in Southern California and often became att- uh, um attuned to their Arabness because they were engaged with the um act of constituting family history right collecting photographs collecting the uh, archi- the archival material of their family. The best case uh, that I can think of here, and it's the way I begin the book, is to reference the um, story of uh, Katrina uh, Saade, who is the grandmother of one of my interlocutors, who uh, whose name is Kathy Saade Kenny. And she tells the story of how, when her mother died here in Southern California, she went to a closet to begin to organize things. And she found this box of letters, right, that were written by her grandmother, Katrina, but she couldn't read them because she couldn't read Arabic. Um, and um, and she wanted to know what they revealed. Uh, and so she embarked on this journey to have the letters translated. And she herself has written um, on that journey of discovery. And she has very graciously, uh, I'm speaking now of Kathy Saadekene. She has very graciously shared her material with me and, and with other scholars. So uh, I think by archival activism, I'm uh, tr- identifying a praxis that, again, is outside a canonical repository. It's not at the Smithsonian. It's not at the IHRC in Minnesota. It's uh an archive that has come into being because of a feminist commitment to collecting and preserving the memory of um, female elders. Um, so there's more I could say on that, but I think uh, that's that's a good way to sum up uh, what archival activism means for me.
1: I mean, I, I found this not only just method- methodologically interesting of course but just from a, a historical vantage point i think it was it was interesting to to read how for your interlocutors um their their activism on behalf of a number of uh what one might uh consider arab american causes right or or you you talk a bit about um, the questions of Palestine, uh, you know, the the first Gulf War, just as as a couple of examples, that that activism sort of comes out of this process of trying to understand and discover one's own history, and and that you know it's it's sort of a a mutually reinforcing endeavor. I I think it it gives, for me at least, the genesis of activism a, a new. A new spin, right? It's it's one thing to say, and I'm sure that this is certainly the case that you know, hearing newsreels of 1967, for example, um, spurred people to action. There's been a lot of work on that, but uh, but this sort of activism seemed so much more personal, um, and I, I think that it was a really fascinating uh, development um, or an, an intervention to make.
0: Thank you for saying that Joshua that's a really lovely way of saying it mutually reinforcing um and i and i think you know there's a long-standing feminist uh tradition of arguing that the personal is a uh, is a political and i think sometimes we say oh you know that's so such an, a, a, an old cliche but it's actually one that we can we can continue to return to and to probe in new ways and so i think that Um, this chapter, as you identified, is one in which I really try to sit with this um, emergence of a political commitment in the context, a political commitment to the question of Palestine. Um, Many of my interlocutors uh, uh, talk about um, going to Palestine as being this kind of catalytic event for them in their... um, coming into being as Arabs, right? So there, you, I, I, it became impossible for me to understand their um, arab Americanness ness uh, without acknowledging the place of Palestine in that uh, consciousness. But uh, wanting to do so in such a way that I, I preserve this kind of intimate realm, right? The intimate realm of the personal, the conversations they had with the grandmothers, the conversations they wished they'd had with their grandmothers, right? Which is something different. Um, but thank you for mentioning that, that mutual reinforcement. I'm going to, I'm going to hold on to that if you don't mind.
1: (laughs) Sure. Absolutely. Um, so one of the other, uh, concepts that you, that you put forth in this book, um, is the notion of uh, Syrian Pacific. Um, And your uh, penultimate chapter is framed uh, around a a really interesting metaphor uh, around the concept of uh, palimpsest, um, which a word maybe uh somewhat unfamiliar to our, our listeners. It's not one that I use every day, certainly, but uh generally it's a it's a document, and feel free to to correct me here if I'm oversimplifying, but it's a document where the original meaning has been either erased or or replaced with something else. And so you turn to uh photographs, uh oral histories and and a novel um in this uh penultimate chapter which, you know, ostensibly focus on one thing, but then you read them in a way that recovers or unsilences a a Syrian Pacific, right, that would otherwise be effaced. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about how you were able to read a a Syrian Pacific into these these sources?
0: Sure. So uh, I had been working uh, with this idea of the palimpsest for a while uh, in relationship to a naturalization case involving um, George Shisham. So you know that I've I've written more extensively on a set of naturalization cases in which uh, Syrians uh, litigated their status as as white persons um, in the early part of the 20th century with cases really Um, emerging in the national scene in the uh, 1909, 1910. Uh, And those cases were all over the place. Um, They were in the South. Um, But the first case that generated a fair amount of um, uh, press coverage uh, was this case of George Shisham in Los Angeles, it was heard at the Superior Court, and I had looked at the documentation that was available and was very struck by what were marginalia, what were these um, obvious uh, notations that were hard to decipher because the, the, the documents had been placed on top of each other, and then um, uh, digitized. So there was this sort of literal palimpsest I was trying to read underneath uh, from one layer to the next, right? Which is the tr- traditional way we think of the palimpsest. But I was also increasingly interested in how the idea of a palimpsest could work metaphorically for understanding the diff- different layers of the racialization process, right? In in Southern California as they related to Syrians. And so it it went from being this concern with how can I read this document more quote unquote accurately, right? If I can kind of detect what's underneath to thinking about where else am I going to encounter the palimpsistic, right? Palimpsistic. And um, I encountered it in a lot of places. You can find it on census records where um, notations are erased, scratched over, um, my uh, f- favorite one is a is the census entry on manuscript censuses of for the category race, where um, you can see that Syrians have been categorized as O for other, but it has been uh, erased, crossed out, and a W has been placed on top of it. So that for me is the palimpsest operating right, and we have to not see that. As a correction, but as um, a kind of layering and a butting up of different regimes of um, of, of 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 race, right? In this one document, uh, a manuscript census. So I think um, again, it's a it's a, an sort of contribution using the concept of the palimpsest is a contribution to. A a conversation on what other conceptual categories can be useful for us as historians of migration, particularly if we're committed to, as I said earlier, moving away from these older, long standing metaphors, the botanical metaphors, the aquatic metaphors. So for me, palimpsest is productive uh, for thinking through uh, different layers of uh, a, a, a spatial category the Syrian Pacific which I which I take from the literature uh, produced by the Syrian American community in Los Angeles, particularly the guidebooks which um, they produced uh, very uh, uh, actively in the 20s and 30s and 40s in which the the identification of their uh, geographical location was the Pacific the Syrian Pacific so. Um, yeah, this is, uh, sort of an homage uh, that I make in the final chapter to, um, the uh, ways in which the community themselves identified their, uh, location, both in terms of topography, but also in the realm of their imaginations.
1: So, um, for our, our listeners who may have seen the, uh, a, a copy of the book, or at least the the cover image, um, there's a a palimpsest in in there as well. Just uh, you know, I think that sort of speaks to the 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 interesting way that you were able to use this metaphor, right? It it has a, a picture of of Muscle Beach, right, and and some very impressive gymnastic feats. Um, but you can see uh, if if you look closer. On the image, Huri uh, in Awad cafe, right, and and you talk in the book about um, how although the the focus of this image, right, of course, is is Muscle Beach, but it it uh, it, it can hide unless one is looking for it, uh, a broader uh, Syrian community in Los Angeles.
0: Exactly. Yeah, I really uh, appreciate that you re- reminded our our listeners of the. The photograph, um, I, I do use it in the last chapter, the photograph of this cafe, the Hori Cafe, uh, again, as a sort of layering of this more iconic photo of Muscle Beach and the tumblers. Uh, and um, I remember when the I was in conversation with the production team at Stanford University Press about the cover, uh, they asked me, what do you want to put on the cover? I said, oh, you know, I like black and white. I'm, um, I'm not, I, I don't have... Uh, a, a choice made right now and then they the designer came back with this one and at first i was like oh okay <laughs> You're good. You're good. but the more i the more i looked at it the more i mean it was just so beautifully uh designed The the cover um it was visually uh stunning i thought and it also really captured a broader um conceptual move I'm making in the books uh, around the palimpsest and the need to look at the layers of the Syrian-American community in, in Southern California. And here we have the obvious one of, um, of the Khuri Cafe sort of setting the stage or being the backdrop for this, um, uh, as I've said, iconic image of the muscled uh, men at Muscle Beach.
1: Well, thank you so much for taking time to to talk with us about this book um, as our listeners have have uh, heard over the course of of this uh podcast it's it's a really rich book full of uh, both exciting anecdotes and and a lot of really uh interesting analytical and and methodological moves. Um I, I just want to ask now. Uh, now that this book is is completed, um, have you thought about uh, what uh, what new projects await you? Uh, what are you working on now?
0: Well, it's a tricky question, Joshua, because uh, we're, we're in very odd uh, circumstances right now with the uh, halt to so much uh, activity because of the COVID pandemic. Uh, so it's I'm. Uh, in a bit of a a pause moment right now I've I've, um, been thinking a lot about my future projects um, because I'm putting my I put my file together for promotion at USC and uh, I sketched out um, for the university the projects that I'm working on one of the ones that I think I want to turn to relatively quickly and this involves me getting to Canada I've for a long time been interested in my own family's uh, trajectory towards um, activism on the question of Palestine. Um, My parents were very involved in Palestine solidarity work uh, in the uh, 50s and 60s, and uh, I've been interested in um, perhaps – using the lens of uh, this family story um, to look at synergies between the uh, Canadian National Movement and the um, Palestine Solidarity Movement. Um, So it's an underdeveloped uh, history, but basically looking at how activists who were, uh, arguing for the importance of the Canadianiza- Canadianization of the um, university curriculum, for example, uh, in the '60s, were also activists drawn to Palestine solidarity work. So, looking at some of those synergies, um, and, and perhaps through the, the l- l- lens of my own um, family, but it's uh, it, you know it's in the early stages. But I do have to. Uh, be- be in in Canada um, to do that work. So hopefully, I'll be able to travel by the fall.
1: Right. Well, it sounds it sounds like a fascinating project uh, ahead, and uh, hopefully, hopefully, when this lit, lifts, it'll be something that you'll be able to pursue. Um, thank you again so much for sitting down with us, and and to our listeners. Um, you know, we, we hope and, and pray that you will be well um, and, and take care during these extremely difficult times. Thank you again, though, Professor, so much for being here with us today.
0: Oh, it's been a real honor. And thank you for uh, being such a wonderful interviewer. These were great questions, Joshua. You take care and I'm wishing you well and uh, good luck in your uh, dissertation. Thanks so much.